Well, hello, everybody. This is Greg Masters. We're broadcasting live today from Mill Valley, California. It's May the 11th, 2011. And we are, uh, I'm excited about our our program today. We're going to try something a little bit different. Um, For those of you who have been participating with us in the past, you know that this is primarily a podcast. It's mostly a combination between live listens and downstream archived listens in the digital river, so to speak. So um, you have an option on Blog Talk Radio if you uh, are live with us today to participate in the chat room. You can dial into the blogtalkradio.com forward slash ACO watch and then join chat. You'll see basically if there's any uh, conversation going on there. In order to comment, you have to actually uh, open a Blog Talk Radio account, which is free. And you can uh, participate that way. The other alternative mo- method is um, we've got an ACO chat that we've started to actually two plus weeks ago. That's at the hashtag or the pound symbol ACO chat or ACOchat.org. And we had a lively conversation on um, April 30th that was moderated by Mark Brown, Dr. Mark Brown, aka Consult Doc on Twitter. We had three questions that were posed uh, on Twitter, and we had rather lively engagement as evidenced by the uh, transcript that was generated, which you can actually find uh, online, and I won't go there right now. But joining me today is a consultant, blogger, noted speaker, and soon-to-be published author, Vince Caritas. Vince is the editor uh in a first-class way of the very popular blog, eCareManagement.com. So, Vince, uh, welcome to the broadcast. Hey, uh, Greg, I'm pleased to be with you today and uh, look forward to uh, sharing ideas and having a conversation and getting some feedback. Oh, me too. So one of the things I did, uh, which I mentioned to you earlier, Vince, is uh, tweeted a couple of times, both under at 2HealthGuru and at ACOWatch, that we will be talking today about your blog post is uh, uh, relative to this uh, physician-hospital alignment. Is it a sustainable model? And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. So we we, we put that out there on Twitter. And then I itemized each of the uh, seven questions which you uh, set up as context for uh, maybe some of the dysfunction that we see in our healthcare system today. So why don't we get right down to it, Vince? Um, let's talk about is this physician alignment a sustainable model? What's your take on that? Well, so uh, I would like to uh, kind of lay out the thesis, which is, I think, uh, a little bit uh, different than I think most folks are probably thinking today. And my my uh, intent is to jog uh, people's thinking a little bit and uh, to suggest that the view out the windshield may be different than the view out the rearview uh, mirror. The uh, hospitals have been uh, purchasing physician practices, and uh, my my take on that is uh, it's 
it almost seems to be a reflexive reaction and that uh, it's driven by uh, assumptions that used to be uh, relevant and uh, I think the, the purpose of uh, the discussion today that I'd like to have is to really raise seven assumptions that uh, these may not be uh, the best things for hospitals to be doing and that the environment is truly changing. Uh, what, I, what I'd like to do is run through those seven assumptions really briefly, maybe take four or five minutes to give an overview, and, and then we can uh, dive into uh, as many as we have time for, because there's quite a bit of depth here. Now this this started. Uh, you and I have a common colleague, uh, Dr. Jan Sidorov, and uh, Jan and I have known each other for a long time. And we were having a conversation about uh, a year ago, and the conversation went along the lines of, uh, "Hey, you know, we uh, see that the the relationship among payers, hospitals, and doctors for for the last hundred years, the model has been really the the hospital as the doctor's workshop." And uh, despite uneasiness in the relationship, hospitals and doctors have tended to sit on one side of the table and insurance companies on the other side of the table, and it's been an antagonistic relationship. Uh, I'm going to use a, a number of mixed metaphors here, and uh, I hope they're helpful. Uh, I think of the doctors as kind of the independent voters, and a as a block, they've been aligned with hospitals, and that as a block, there is a potential. And, and that's not a prediction, not here as a fortune teller, but here more to underline, uh, to look at underlying trends and to see that the block of doctors has the potential to shift to uh, a much closer alignment with payers. And I understand that uh, many people will say that's uh, even sacrilegious or blasphemous. It's, it's akin to suggesting that uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys, uh, in this case referencing the doctors and the payers, uh, put down their, their weapons uh, and engage in a group hug and sing Kumbaya, and, and that may seem counterintuitive, And uh, but bear with me, I think. Uh, let me lay out the seven assumptions quickly, and then we can dive into them. So assumption number one driving the, the way we are today is we've had fee-for-service and we've rewarded piecemeal work. And unless you've been uh, living in a cave, I think uh, it's becoming uh, pretty clear that there's hardly anyone left in the room uh, in the debate that's occurring around fee-for-service reimbursement. There's, anyone, there's no one left in the room who's really defending fee-for-service actively. And uh, a phrase that I hear increasingly being used is that the system is changing from rewarding volume or fee-for-service to rewarding value, and uh, under that kind of a system, the hospital's role changes dramatically. The hospital under a volume-driven payment system is the cost, is the revenue center, and the more that the hospital does, the more profitable you get. And under a value-based system, the hospital becomes really the place that you want to avoid where you've got high-intensity, high-cost resources, and you begin to look at a patient being hospitalized as a, a failure of uh, the system, and we're really trying to build a system to keep people out of the hospital. So that's assumption number one. Uh, assumption number two that is worth re-examining is this notion of hospitals and doctors being a natural alliance. And if you, if you go back 100 years, the the history is that 
uh, hospitals provided resources, they provided staff, they provided technology, and the doctors had offices next door, and the, the label was the doctor's workshop. Today, uh, actually over the last 20 to 30 years, many factors are occurring to break that down. Uh, hospitals compete with uh, doctors and ambulatory services. Uh, hospitals are now hiring hospitalists to care for patients, and many physicians have very little reason to set foot inside of a hospital. And again, uh, I think looking out the windshield, the economics are about to change to accelerate what I think has been over the, the last hundred years in alignment, but a very uneasy one that's already fraying at the edges. Uh, assumption number three is uh, that physicians can function effectively in small and medium-sized practices. And I, I think uh, what we are seeing, and I, I want to be provocative but not antagonistic here and suggest that uh, it may be the time when uh, that assumption that doctors can work in small practices may not work for the future. But that doesn't necessarily lead doctors to the conclusion that the, that the only option or the logical option is to be employed by the hospital. And that's the point I want to lead to. The, the underlying problem may be around corporatization of medicine, and people are picking up on a diagnosis of I've got to sell out to the hospital or a prescription of I've got to sell out to the hospital, you know, right diagnosis, wrong prescription. Uh, number four in the list of assumptions is the idea of hospitals, doctors, uh, really everybody in the healthcare system, uh, having a mindset, culture, systems built around control. And it, it goes to really the autonomy of the individual physician, uh, how uh, we have in the past respected and tried to preserve that autonomy. And I would suggest that what we're moving towards is much more a, a system of collaboration, of team care, of coordinating care, and that the kinds of relationships and incentives that we had in the past may not be the ones that take us to the future. Uh, assumption number five is the barriers to sharing patient information and coordinating care are very high, uh, primarily around uh, information technology, uh, which is largely non-existent, around uh, privacy requirements, and around uh, lack of incentives for the doctors to share uh, information and for the hospital to share information. And that in the past, information has been viewed as a competitive asset of doctors and of hospitals. And it's something that you hold on to and you, you don't come with the mindset of moving information around, making data liquid as possible. That assumption, again, is breaking down and uh, the government is putting billions of dollars into trying to get doctors and hospitals on electronic health record technology. Uh, the whole idea of ACOs is to uh, share information and to coordinate care. And again, the rear view mirror view is very different than the view out the windshield. Uh, number six in the list of assumptions is the hospital has been the economic bedrock of the community. And uh, I've spent uh, over 25 years of my career uh, in and around uh, virtually every sector of healthcare, and the, the first 15 years uh, in and around uh, hospitals, 
uh, and uh, have lots of uh, wounds from uh, from having encounters with doctors who uh, have uh, perhaps uneasy relationships with with physicians. Uh, and despite that uneasiness, though, there is a respect for the role of the hospital in the community. And if you live in a small to medium-sized town, the hospital uh, is uh, usually a place where the board members are well-known. Uh, everyone knows the name of the hospital. Uh, the hospital is going to be perhaps in the top five employers in a, in a community. And uh, in turn, that, that may be uh, what is driving doctors to... Again, what I'm describing is something of a reflexive, uh, lemming-like response to simply join the uh, the hospital and to be employed by the hospital. And and I don't want to suggest that this role is necessarily going to change. But uh, what we haven't seen again is you know what happens to the hospital and their role in bedrock of the community if what we're trying to do with ACOs uh, to make the hospital the the cost center instead of the revenue center, what if we're successful with that? And is it reasonable to continue assuming that the hospital is going to be the economic bedrock of the community? The, the last assumption, number seven, is uh, around health plans. And, uh, you know, the, the, I think the, the mindset that most of us carry around is epitomized by the movie John Q, uh, where uh, the health plan is the bad guy. And uh, in the era of managed care, the health plan was seen as uh, denying resources uh, and uh, not paying for patients' treatment and for uh, getting rid of patients uh, if they were uh, unnecessarily or extraordinarily sick or likely to be sick. Uh, health plans, if you look out the windshield, have a new role. And they have an incredible opportunity to provide new value in the, the marketplace. Uh, doctors are going to need uh, capabilities such as uh, data and analytics. They're going to need an ability to uh, monitor patients, to provide patient portals, uh, to provide uh, care management services. And if you ask the question, who has uh, more competencies in terms of providing those kinds of capabilities, hospitals, or doctors, uh, you know, I think many people would suggest that the capabilities that doctors are going to need are uh, much more in the hands of payers uh, and less so in the hands of, of hospitals. So uh, that's kind of an overview. And uh, as, as we talked this morning, I think what I would appreciate from you, Greg, is kind of a punch back at me. Let's go into these in a little bit more depth. And uh, you know, I've, I've got uh, quite a bit of uh, detail behind every one of these. Well, that, that, that's a that's a beautiful overview, great context, and so yeah, let's begin. A couple things that were coming up um, uh, for me. Uh, I, I'll take this out of sequence here, but this whole control thing, particularly from the hospital perspective, you know, there's a whole twelve step program for people who have control issues. So I'll just say that. <laughs> Okay. Just, just to add some levity here, but yeah, let's let's do a deep dive here. So, number one, healthcare payment systems have rewarded piecemeal work. You know, obviously, way back when the uh, 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 the charge base basis 
uh, came out where physicians basically set their usual and customary fee, and that's what was embedded in indemnity policies. Um, you know, it, it, that's the way it worked until, you know, the carriers, the insurance companies started thinking, well, gee, this is getting kind of expensive rather than you telling us what what you, what you're going to charge and we accept that as market value. We're going to do surveys and we're going to come up with what we call prevailing or usual and customary charges. And then we're going to pay you at certain percentiles of that, you know. So it's, you know, it went from you name it, we'll pay it. To wait a second, let's survey and determine what's reasonable. To then we got into more aggressive contract rates and RVS and factors and so forth. Okay, can we make the assumption right now that everyone's in the mindset that piecemeal, fee-for-service space, or production-oriented practices no longer work? Can we make that assumption? Uh, I think we can make that assumption, but I would add, as, as a really big footnote, is that we're still kind of in limbo, uh, where uh, that assumption uh, is is increasingly recognized. But uh, for the most part, the the changes that need to occur are just beginning. And if you look at how doctors and hospitals are paid, it's a very schizophrenic environment where uh, you know we we recognize that fee for services is. is uh, you know, not the way to go. Many many hospital leaders have come out and acknowledged that, and uh, uh, I think you've even stopped trying to defend fee for service as a reasonable way to pay people. But you know, the unfortunate reality is that's still the predominant payment method. Uh, certainly, particularly from uh, from Medicare, which is about you know 50% of any hospital's volume. Schizophrenic in the sense that they have mixed payment. So they have different incentives based on certain payer or payer arrangements, correct? Like uh, a, ca well, a case rate, as an example, versus a per diem, versus some fee-for-service derivation of payment, as opposed to capitation or budget-based uh, compensation. Well, let, let me try and uh, articulate it. You know, from from having sat in the chair of hospital of a hospital executive, what I think is going on through the Great. minds of hospital executives right now. And it's it's kind of a, uh, you know, uh, it's a bet uh, of, uh, on, on the one hand, uh, you look at fee-for-service and you go, fee-for-service has really been pretty good for the, for the hospital world for the most part. And from a purely economic incentive, the idea of uh, being paid more to do more stuff and not having a lot of controls is uh, is not a bad business model. So the the economics of fee for service uh, really are working okay for for most of the hospitals and the, and the doctors. Uh, I think the the message, if I were a hospital administrator, that I would be getting from the rest of the world, though, is uh, you know that may work for you, but it doesn't work for us. And the us being uh, the patient, the uh, the health plan, Medicare. Uh, Government, employers, just about everybody is saying this fee-for-service system doesn't work. So, so the bet that you go through in your in your mind is, you know, how long can I uh, do I do I want to be a maybe the question I would phrase it as the strategic question is is do I want to be a uh, you know first mover in my marketplace and uh, and accept the inevitability of the end of fee-for-service and be the first one to go out there and start realigning all of my systems to be 
more oriented towards value, or uh, do I want to drag my feet and uh, be perhaps a a fast follower or even a foot dragger? And uh, certainly, we've had you know lots and lots of uh, attempts to reform the healthcare system in the last. 20, 30 years, and you know most of which have failed because it's politically so logjammed. So that that's my sense of what what uh, what hospital administrators are going through. And frankly, it's it's hard to know uh, what's going on in their heart of hearts or their you know the, the depth of their mind as to whether uh, you know they 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 certainly articulate that they want to uh, move towards being a, accountable care organizations. But I, I think the inner dialogue is really far more complex and nuanced from the standpoint of a hospital administrator. Okay. So any more on payment systems, or you want to move to uh, number two? Uh, you know, I think maybe I'll just add the payment system is, is really at the top of the list, and it does deserve to be there. Uh, it is really uh, the driver, and, uh, you know, in my experience of, again, 25 years in Healthcare. I've learned uh, people do follow incentives, and uh, my uh, belief in following the money uh, is, uh, you know, very deep. Uh, and that it doesn't necessarily take uh, what it takes is a change in the direction of the incentives. You don't necessarily have to change the dollar amounts as significantly, but you got to change the direction and. Certainly, accountable organization, accountable care organizations, whether they wind up working or not, are a step in that direction. So uh, that's a, that's maybe a concluding comment, and let's let's go on to wherever you'd like to go. Okay, okay. So I, I'm I'm reminded of the, your colleague, Dr. John Madison at HealthCamp San Diego. He said uh, he quoted, um, you, know, "You get what you incent," quote unquote. So uh, just as a follow-on to your remark, so might this be on topic too, despite on these uneasiness hospital physician relationships have been cooperative so is there some relationship to the payment system there and might this be part of the tension or cooperation that they're able to to achieve okay so let me speak to the doctors and uh, I guess the question that I would pose to the doctors is uh, you know doctor uh, you know rethink this knee-jerk reaction of why uh, doctors are signing up with the hospital and uh, what is the underlying reason for that. Uh, and I think my my answer to that is that there in the past has been a, uh, a tension and uneasy alliance between doctors uh, and hospitals, but uh, that may not continue in the future, and that's really the uh, the question that I want to pose to doctors. You may, and this this I think will be surprising, and perhaps uh, I suspect many doctors uh, would would outright reject this. But you, doctor, may wake up a year or two from now, or three, and and say, you know, in terms of where my economic interests are aligned, uh, I've just realized I've got a lot more in common with the payer uh, than I do with the hospital. Uh, and yet, I may be in a partnership with the hospital. And the reason for that is really pretty simple. It boils down to the commonality of the doctor's interests and the payer's interests uh, become much more aligned under a volume to value or accountable care system. The 
doctors and the payers have a common incentive to maximize quality and to minimize the unnecessary use of expensive uh, resources such as uh, hospital days, emergency rooms, admissions, uh, hospital testing, etc. So uh, the, the common target for the payers and the doctors becomes uh, removing utilization from the uh, 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 removing unnecessary utilization. Uh, and then I think you got to look at whereas there's been an alliance between doctors and hospitals over the last 100 years, over the last 20 or 30 years, that, that alliance has uh, really begun to fray at the edges. And I'll tick off a couple of the areas where, where that's happening. Uh, in ambulatory services, lots of competition between doctors and, and hospitals. Uh, if you're a uh, medical group, you may see the doctors or you may see the, uh, the hospital as a competitor in uh, hiring new physicians that come into the community. Uh, the, the notion of uh, hospitalist physicians who take care of patients while they're in the hospital. Most, uh, over the last decade, most hospitals have developed hospitalist programs. And whereas tradition used to be that the community physician would follow the patient while they were in the hospital, today it's much more common that the hospitalist follows the patient while they're, they're in the hospital and then discharges them back to their primary care physician. And so uh, many doctors have very little reason to set foot in a hospital. Uh, the, uh, the convenience or the, the, the uh, credibility of being on a hospital's medical staff is changing. And the, uh, the notion of the benefit uh, of being on the medical staff is increasingly changed by the burden in many hospitals of having to participate in emergency room call. And so more and more physicians are saying, do I really even want to be on uh, the hospital's medical staff? Uh, that's, you know, an example of where the relationship is fraying. And, uh, you know, I think the, the question I would also pose is uh, people use the word alignment and Clearly, hospitals are employing doctors, but is that really alignment? You know, if you work for a company as an employee, do you think of yourself as uh, aligned with that company or simply employed by that company? Uh, and you know, those are questions where I think we would pause. And I think the the point of what I'm trying to say, suggest to physicians to say, you know, pause, think reflexively, uh, look out the windshield instead of the rearview mirror, and the view may be a little bit different. Right, right. There's a big leap there from aligned to employed, um, at least in my in my view. Let's back up here. I uh, David Harlow, shout out to at Health Blog, is in the chat room, and he posed a question that was actually uh, uh, tracking with the first uh, thesis or the first assumption, and he writes. I'd argue we can't make that assumption that there's broad support for a step away from fee-for-service even here in the People's Republic of Massachusetts. A state senator was promising the Massachusetts Medical Society within the past week that he'd, pull, that he'd put the brakes on the governor's plan to 
to replace fee-for-service with bundled payments for episodes of care through an all-payer ACO model. A bunch of hospitals have said in the past week that the incentives embodied in ACOs won't work because of retrospective attribution of membership. <laughs> Any comment, Vince? <laughs> well, I think David makes a really good point. And, yeah. and uh, you know, my... Yeah. My point here is really to get people yeah. to question the assumptions, and I, yeah. you know, welcome him pushing back. Uh, and I'll be the first one to say, you know, that uh, all these machinations that we're going through to try to move from uh, a system of uh, volume to value uh, may not work. And uh, and I think you, you have to make your own assumptions uh, and read the tea leaves. And you know, as we were chatting uh, before we got on. Uh, the the, uh, the broadcast uh, earlier today, I think, you know, it's perfectly clear that the world is muddy out there. That uh, for me, again, having been in this for close to 30 years now, I've never seen a time that's more fluid and uh, unpredictable. And so uh, I I don't uh, feel at all defensive about David's comment. And uh, many people may well conclude that uh, fee-for-service is going to stick around despite all the experiments. Uh, I'm only suggesting, uh, I personally don't conclude that, uh, but I think it's also very reasonable to, to conclude uh, that it is going to continue. And, you know, I think the, the value here is just in laying out that assumption and thinking through, uh, again, with the main topic being, you know, does, does employment of physicians from the hospital's viewpoint make sense? clearly makes sense, I think, from the fee-for-service vantage point, and, you know, we can probably get into where it may make a lot less sense from from the vantage point of uh, a value-based system as opposed to a volume-based system. Yeah, I, you know, I think he makes a great point. I mean, just north of the, quote, People's Republic of Massachusetts, there's a People's Republic of Vermont, and they've just passed a single-payer, uh, you know, uh, program. So, um, I'm pretty sure they passed it. Um, I may be overstating it there, Ted, but um, it's all it's regional, and we're in a comment period on these ACOs. Clearly, there's a lot of buzz in the marketplace about the regs. So to say that any conclusions are being made here, you know, as to who's in what bucket and where's where's this all going, you know, who knows? All right, let's move on to uh, your. Yeah, did you want to say something? Yeah, I think you're you're hitting on a really really good point, Greg. That uh, you know that 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 question of do we move from volume to value is is really uh, you know, away from fee for service is too black and white, and you're pointing out that there's a lot of shades of gray, and you know, what we're seeing is uh, really interesting experiments at the state level with Vermont, uh, you know, leading the charge in developing a single a single payer uh, mechanism. Uh, a number of states have developed uh, multi multi payer uh, strategies. And, uh, you know, we've got uh, 50 different laboratories in the states and probably hundreds of different laboratories when you look at more uh, regionally-based delivery systems. And, you know, everyone's trying uh, something, and, you know, it may take a long time before it sifts out into some sort of a real clear pattern. And and even in the uh, um, the risk 
model incubator, as uh, Cheryl Skolnick calls California, uh, we may see we've seen a single payer proposal get on the governor's desk a couple of times, and California may may not be too far Vermont if we can't get a handle on the cost value proposition. So let's go forward with the assumption number three: physicians can function effectively in small to medium-sized practices. What's up with that? Well, uh, so, uh, you know, the statistics that I've seen, I'm I'm trying to quote from memory, but I think these will be in the ballpark, Uh, you know, something in the range of 75% of primary care being delivered in physician groups of uh, 10 or less, which is where I'd probably cut the line at, at medium. Uh, and that, uh, you know, the, the past we've had uh, doctors hanging up their own shingles, uh, doctors working in very small groups, and uh, I think we're seeing that stressed right now. Uh, and I think that what, what I'm suggesting doctors need to do is to, to understand that stress and really to ask two different questions. Uh, first of all, is the uh, ability to be an independent small uh, practice physician viable for the future? And you can reach your own answer on that. Uh, I I think to me it's very questionable, uh, and what we're seeing here is uh, pressures at a a large level to uh, develop information technology, to to work in a system as opposed to uh, as an individual physician that uh, do lead towards uh, consolidation of of physicians as it would in any other segment of the economy. Uh, But the second question that's really independent of can you remain independent is, uh, you know, do you want to be uh, partnering with the hospital? And that's a whole separate question. And uh, what what I'm sensing is that that gets wrapped up into one question from the surveys that, that I've seen that, uh, a lot of what is motivating physicians right now, you ask them, you know, why are you thinking about working for the hospital? The answer you get back is uh, it's around insecurity and fear and uh, trying to get some, some stability in their in their lives, uh, which is understandable. Uh, but, again, that doesn't make for alignment. It makes for, you know, an employment relationship, and it may provide some appearance of stability, but uh, to call that uh, a sustainable, uh, integrated, aligned relationship uh, is, you know, probably uh, stretching it. It becomes, again, more the marriage of convenience as opposed to really uh, true economic alignment. And I uh, would pause for doctors to also think through the question, where do you really have your economic incentives aligned? And is, is the answer, you know, the mm-hmm. hospital? Speaking, uh, I want to cycle back here. Uh, another comment from David, which is excellent. And uh, since this uh, is, I know this is listened to by some of the CMS folk, let's get this on the record. Um, David says, again, Vince, you said that small incentive payments make sense. What about the notion that you can't move behavior with with 2% at risk, need more at risk? Uh, again, I don't disagree. Uh, and uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, if, if, if you speak metaphorically here about uh, volume-based payment being 180 degrees different than uh, 
fee-for-service-based payment, it's it's not likely and it's not necessary and it's not realistic that we're going to uh, make that as a U-turn. It's much more likely that we're going to do a series of 30 to 45-degree turns, and uh, you see that in the way that the ACO regulations are structured by uh, by Medicare. Uh, you know, one of the early criticisms of the Medicare shared savings legislation was that it only provided uh, upside for uh, for hospitals and for doctors. And as as the regs have finally uh, come out, uh, <laughs> that if you're a hospital or a doctor and you want to participate in an ACO as they're currently written, uh, you can't escape downside risk at least in year three. And uh, and so I I think I would agree with uh, with David's uh, point that uh, you know that eventually the incentives will have to be uh, dramatically restructured. Uh, my observation is is you can begin to get behavior change with a little bit of an incentive. So let's start moving the needle. Uh, let's move begin to move 30 degrees. And uh, I think that Medicare particularly is signaling that. Uh, the idea is to eventually move much closer to a full U-turn uh, and to put far more uh, risk onto the providers than they've had in the past uh, and that there's not only going to be just pure uh, upside with no, no downside risk here. So uh, I think, you know, David's point is uh, is really well taken. Yeah, absolutely. Uh- uh, I, I, mean, I we don't have much to disagree about here. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I don't, and, and I can't leave this one because this is so right on. Given these pat, this patchwork approach to you know, to innovation, he says uh, a completely different angle here. Some multi-state, some multi-state employers say, "quote Save me from the fifty laboratories." End quote. I want one plan uniform across the country. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> You know, right on. <laughs> that's all I have to say to that one. Yeah, okay. and that's a political question, you know. And I, I, you know, I work as a business consultant, and I, you know, I can't answer that political question. I, I think my my sense is, you know, yeah. it's maybe a good idea, but it just ain't happening that way. And well, yeah, uh, it's a political question, and that's why the Kucinich HR six seventy six never saw the light of day in the health reform debate. Because it, yeah. it just it just there wasn't that kind of support from it. Okay, so um, number four, uh, the healthcare mindset built on control, not collaboration. Talk about that. Well, uh, so I'll, I'll go back to my you know first employment. Uh, you know, personal stories can make a difference. I, I remember I spent ten years working in a in a in a regional delivery system and before that did five years of hospital based consulting. So I've I've walked the halls, the boiler rooms, done home health visits, uh, you know, I've walked in, uh, spent a lot of time in the doctor's lounge and, and getting beat up by the doctors as well too in meetings. So I understand, you know, what happens in a local uh, delivery system and you know in a hospital environment. Uh, you know, health healthcare has been built around silos. And uh, I think we we recognize in the notion of the continuum of care that we want to break down those silos and move more towards teams. But but the mindset, the culture, the systems, it's all been geared towards uh, control. And uh, you know I I think it even goes more broadly to the idea of uh, you know the internet entering 
the way that our lives work. And uh, today uh, we look at uh, social media uh, collaboration. Uh, we look at software that helps people who aren't necessarily in the same location uh, work together or people who aren't even in the same company to work together. Uh, and, and very little of that has penetrated healthcare. You know, the, the mindset of uh, you know individual autonomy is very strong. And so, you know, back to my personal story, you know, I remember standing outside of the hospital and, and naively looking at this institution and going, you know, boy, this is really pretty cool. Where you've got all these highly skilled uh, professional people, uh, doctors, nurses. You know, therapists, uh, phlebotomists, uh, discharge planners, administrators, you know, all, all coming together to work, uh, you know, in harmony under this building and, you know, on behalf of the patient. And, you know, then uh, if you've actually worked in the healthcare system, you know, you know it just ain't that way. You know, we've got fiefdoms and uh, lots of uh, professional hierarchies, and even within uh, the pecking order of uh, individual uh, physicians, certainly, uh, you know, much more uh, jealousy and respect and uh, inner uh, bickering among uh, specialists versus primary care and specialists versus specialists. Uh, you know, it is, it's not a team environment. And uh, I think that uh, if we move towards this idea of really coordinating care, by, by definition, that that's a change in the way that healthcare has traditionally functioned. And again, we all seem to agree that this is a good direction to move, but in the meanwhile, we've built up a uh, hundred plus years of uh, systems in our community of doctors and hospitals working working separately. Uh, you know, this one's going to take a long time to to knock down. And uh, the the picture I want to leave again is you know from the vantage point of history, we may be at an inflection point right now where the, uh, you know, this, this era may be looked at as really the time where uh, the silos of healthcare really began to break down. And uh, again, the payment systems are, are likely to be the main driver of that. If, if we pay for team-based care, I, I think we're likely to get team-based care. You know, we continue to pay for individual silos, well, we'll, we'll get what we pay for. Yeah, there we come. They come right back to you. Get what you incent. I was going to ask, yeah. them, well, why is it why has it been so so change resistant over so long? And I think you just answered it. It's what we incent. Uh, you know, I think Don Don Berwick, uh has often been quoted as saying, you know, systems are, you know, perfectly designed to get the result that they achieve, and uh, you know, the the system we've got incentivizes and rewards. Uh, individual non-coordinated uh, behavior and uh, the production of uh, piecemeal uh, work in high volumes and uh, the system rewards that and that's that's what we get. Well, yeah. what about what about is there a human factor here though, especially around control and the and the building of silos? So, so again, I'll put myself in the hospital administrator's shoes, having having sat there. You know the. The problem, so let's say I'm the hospital CEO and, uh, you know, with, in conjunction with my board and with my executive team, uh, I make the decision or we make the decision collectively 
that, uh, you know, we recognize that it's time to change and we really need to build, build a system of accountable care. You know, to move along the rest of the institution, uh, you know, typically in a delivery system, you you may have five, ten thousand, you know, fifteen thousand plus employees, and again, you got a, you know, a hundred years of incentives, where uh, the way that you do things has been built upon uh, maximizing the economics of you know, being paid for volume. So even once you decide at the level of the CEO, hey, you know, it's time to go a different direction, uh, getting the troops, the systems, and the culture to move uh, in this new direction is going to be very, very difficult. And and I, I've worked in hospitals, and I know, uh, you know, those fiefdoms take a long time to, to, to break down. It's not going to happen overnight. Yeah, I've seen a lot of battles in the departmental versus service line organization of hospitals play out in my tenure as well. How about uh, number five, barriers to sharing patient information and coordinating care are high. Okay, so let's let's take a look uh, in the rearview mirror and, uh, you know, what some of the incentives in the major uh, uh, systems that we've had in place. You know, first we've got to, again, look to the payment system. There's no economic reward for for coordinating care uh, the doctor who gets a phone call from the patient uh, does it because out they respond out of a sense of professionalism but they don't get any economic reward for it uh, information technology is largely non-existent uh, the method for still sharing patient information if it happens is through you know, fax or, or mail, and it's still done on paper as opposed to being done electronically. Uh, HIPAA is another uh, example where I would look to the idea of, uh, you know, an unintended consequence of HIPAA has been that I think uh, people are very reluctant to to, uh, to share information. You know, the message that, that you've gotten as a hospital administrator is, hey, you share this message, you know, you share this patient data uh, inappropriately, and you're going to spend time in jail. Uh, and so uh, that has a, a very much of a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, an over effect of leaning towards uh, the whole system and mindset and culture of not sharing information. And then uh, the last point of, uh, I think, uh, that uh, information has been looked at as a competitive asset. And uh, sure, if I'm a doctor or a hospital, I would love to get your information about the patient, but, uh, boy, you want my information about the patient? Uh, why would I want to give you that? You know, I'm, I'm sharing data with someone who may be a, a competitor. Uh, and it's not a very patient-centric view of, of the world. It, the, the system is oriented around uh, building uh the competitive advantage of the organization as opposed to really the care of the patient. And so uh, a distinction that I, I think is really important is, to me, from a business standpoint and working with clients, it's very important and understandable to recognize that a, that a healthcare system would want to keep patients within its delivery system. And the mechanism to do that in the past has been uh, to share information only within your closed system uh, and not to share information outside of your system. 
that's the assumption that I want to get people to look at and say, is that the way that things are going to continue in the future? So, you know, we've looked out the, at the rear view. If you look out the, the windshield, the view is one where uh, you've got government policy uh, very clearly encouraging the adoption of electronic health records, the uh, creation of uh, health information exchanges, uh, the idea of building uh, data systems around the patient and not around uh, the healthcare provider. And again, uh, it's not, I think, uh, entirely clear uh, where that's going to wind up, but I think there's certainly a lot of pressure uh, to change the system and to make uh, the whole idea of sharing information appropriately, you know, much more the default as opposed to uh, uh, the, the current reaction you get today as a patient if you ask for your 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 data is uh you know i have a right to my data uh and the, the doctor of the hospital will say yeah sure you have a right to your data and you know put it in writing uh and we'll get back to you in 30 days and we'll send you a stack of paper uh you know as compared to what we would get from our mm -hmm. bank you go on bank you see your information online you know what we need to be building a system where healthcare mirrors the the kind of information capabilities we have in the rest of our economy. Yeah, I think the uh, the emergence of social networks, this data liquidity issue that's coming up now, uh, probably going to be the sea change that uh, the, of this tipping point here to, to sort of change that as a reality. And I'm also thinking every one of these, besides humans as the common denominator here, they're all very much rooted in culture. Culture is perhaps the secondary context that drives all this stuff. So number six, the hospital has been the economic bedrock of the community. What's what's up with that? Yeah, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one. I think, again, I've, I've said a lot in the preface of, you know, the the hospital's often the large employer. It's prestigious. Uh, we, we certainly look at uh, the, the large uh, executives uh, of corporations as being the board members. Uh, and that uh, if that's all driven by the hospital being the revenue center, as it's been in the past, uh, you know, what happens when the hospital turns into the cost center? And the uh, the assumption that, that I'm uh, wondering whether physicians are making is, you know, am I safer in my own choice of uh, my career by being employed by the hospital? And, uh, you know, I don't think I would go so far necessarily as to say that's a wrong decision, but I, I think I will ask and say that ain't necessarily so. And uh, to really uh, examine that assumption of the hospital being the economic bedrock of the community simply because it has been in the past, I, I don't think it gets more complicated than that, Craig. Okay. So, But you're not suggesting it, there's a shift in gravity here? Because of a change in values, or I mean, you're talking about. I don't. I, I, don't, I don't want to be seen as suggesting the bottom is going to fall out of hospitals, mm -hmm. but I, mm -hmm. I am suggesting that the that the kind of uh, shifts that most people are trying to uh, create. Uh, when I say most people, again, uh, payers, employers, government, uh, in changing the payment system, uh, changes the role of the hospital, and that that. Uh, could have an effect upon uh, 
the safety and the stability of, of the hospital as an employer of you, the doctor. So I'm kind of shifting a lot of different hats here. That's my only point. Got it. Okay, so now number seven. This is my favorite, and we do have a uh, comment on Twitter, for, uh, which I'll mention. Health plans are the bad guys. What do you mean there? Well, so when uh, I'm go, trying to going back to John Q. I mean, going back to the John Q. sort of frame of reference. <laughs> Talk about. Yeah. It. Okay, so uh, you know, I, I'm going to try and present a more neutral picture of, of health plans. Uh, health plans have been uh, their business model is changing, uh, and I think the the major criticism of health plans is that they have been pursuing a business model that is uh, adverse, uh, that is based upon avoiding adverse risk. Uh, and, you know, in plain English, what that means is uh, once people, uh, you don't want to insure people who are sick, uh, or if someone becomes sick, that uh, you dump them from your health plan. And that's where health plans have gotten uh, this, I think, very widespread public picture of uh, being in the role of uh, not insuring people who need insurance, and uh, once they are insured, when they become sick, to deny to, not, to deny coverage. So uh, let's take this out of the context of uh, of health insurance and just look at it for a second in the context of insurance, and and give you a, an example where uh, let's say you're an insurance company and uh, someone comes to you and. Uh, wants you to insure their beachfront property uh, on uh, in Malibu or in uh, in Florida, and and you say that's crazy. Why would I want to insure beachfront property? You know, next storm that comes along, I'm going to get wiped out. Uh, so the point I'm making here is that the idea of uh, a business model based upon avoiding adverse risk, uh, you know, outside of healthcare is actually not not a bad thing, and I think we intuitively can understand the insurance company's point of view of saying, you know, why would I want to insure beachfront property? Uh, the difference here is that, you know, when, you're, when we're dealing with, with people, you know, with, uh, with my mom or your grandmother, uh, it's a different scenario, and uh, we do want to provide insurance for my mom and, for, and, and your grandmother. And so I think we've actually reached a very uh, rational solution in, in healthcare reform legislation, in effect, where uh, the new law, and, and this is one where we really don't even have to debate whether this is going to happen. It's already in the legislation. Uh, the new law effectively says you cannot uh, not insure people because of their health status, and you can't dump them from your health plan. But the, the quid pro quo for the health plan becomes, you know, we're going to give you a, uh, a risk-adjusted premium payment. Or uh, to put it back in the context of the example of uh, the beachfront property, you know, yes, you are going to have to insure beachfront property, but you're going to be paid uh, a lot more because there's a recognition that, uh, there's a uh, an excessive risk there, and so the you know it's really about the rules of the game that we've had, and I think the rules of the game for health plans, again I'm trying to look at this fairly neutrally, have uh, economically incentivized the kinds of behaviors that they have been pursuing. Uh, it's been labeled as evil and immoral, and you know uh, I think that's uh, understandable. 
But the solution to that is uh, to change the rules of the game, and I think that's exactly what we've done, and with, you know, with healthcare uh, reform legislation. So, so going forward, uh, uh, let's put ourselves back in the shoes of the doctor for a minute and say, uh, I, I see this new vision towards accountable care. What, what am I going to need as a doctor to be successful? And uh, the, the doctor's workshop in the last century was uh, the hospital, where what you needed was uh, nurses and you needed uh, hospital-based technology like uh, X-ray equipment and CT scanners and, you know, MRIs. And, you know, I think uh, we, we probably would share a vision where the kinds of capabilities you need to manage a population of patients is one of... Uh, you need different kinds of capabilities. You need, you know, an ability to communicate with your patients uh, when they're not in front of you in the office. Uh, you need an ability to monitor your patients who are perhaps uh, potentially likely to wind up in the emergency room. The, uh, you know, the typical case is a patient with heart failure, and if they gain five pounds, uh, and you can measure that, and then. Uh, give them a shot of Lasix, uh, you're likely to avoid a $10,000 hospitalization. But but you need a system of uh, monitoring that patient and communicating with that patient uh, that has nothing to do with what's going on in the hospital. And, in fact, again, you're trying to keep them out of the hospital. Okay. So uh, let, let, me stop, let, me, let me stop you there because – I want to I want to throw a fastball at you here because that you you've thrown some lobs here on the health plan angle. Um, the, the, clearly, there's a tender underbelly between hospitals and physicians historically, and the one thing that tends to unite them is the health plan. But we're talking about ACOs, and one of the question is, okay, you know, is the business model hospital physician sustainable, or you know, the extrapolation there is, might there be a more suitable Partner. In other words, can doctors be better organized, supported, served, etc., by health plans, as an example? So let's just make that for the remaining two minutes plus we have, uh, you know, a subject of quick conversation. Is a health plan? Can a health plan be a better partner for a physician-organized ACO? Well, I think that that's really the punchline of the whole conversation here. That. Uh, I think we haven't seen a lot of payer physician alignment in the past. Again, it's been the the Hatfields and the McCoys. But today, I think uh, we see uh, many early examples of where uh, the payers are reaching out to uh, the doctors and beginning to form uh, relationships where where we see uh, payer driven uh, ACOs where the payers may. support with capital or resources, uh, the doctor's doing an ACO and the hospital may have nothing to do with it. Uh, the, the Norton uh, Humana example that you uh, tweeted about earlier is a good one. Uh, Aetna and Carillion uh, Clinic is another good one to, uh, to look at. Uh, I think the, uh, uh, the acquisitions that some of the large insurance companies have done recently are also uh, signaling the, the change that's going on where uh, Aetna purchased uh, the number one health information exchange IT vendor, um, Medicity, and uh, United Healthcare purchased the number two health information exchange vendor, uh, Axolotl. Uh, and, 
and third, uh, where Humana uh, purchased uh, Concentra, a, a group of uh, primary care physicians that work in uh, employer-sponsored clinics and, and combination urgent care clinics. So these are early examples of the kinds of things I think we're going to continue to see many more of in the near future, where uh, the payers uh, try to cut a deal directly with the doctors. And uh, I think what I'm trying to lay is some groundwork as to where that makes some economic sense and why uh, why it may be worth uh, rethinking those kinds of deals, whereas uh, doctors probably would have been reluctant to be thinking about that a couple of years ago. So uh, comments, well, pushbacks. Yes, yeah, so it's interesting. You know, this is, again, a continuing experiment in this medium, this broadly cast medium of social media, you know, which is uh, there's uh, swarmology.com, there's infinigraph.com, there's justsignal.com. They're all out there with data mining and business intelligence gathering thematically sensitive, keyword sensitive, phrase sensitive, conversational monitors. And I put out, uh, you know, that we would be talking about this subject and, and invited anyone from Humana or Norton or any health plan that is involved in ACO planning to sort of address, to step up and speak up. And we got zero comments. The one comment we got was from John Moore, a.k.a. John underscore Chillmark, at Chillmark Research, and John posits, uh, I don't know if he saw the prior tweets, but he, he responded in kind that that's silly. AC, uh, payers will play an important role in the ACO. So, um, yeah. Well, well, my comment to John is uh, <laughs> that I can see where maybe my blog post is taken out of context. Yeah. So, uh, you know, to make it more explicit, I'm laying out assumptions that have driven us yeah. in the past and suggesting we need to revisit those assumptions. So uh, yeah. I'm completely on board with, with what John's saying. Yeah, play, yeah, payers can and should play a really important role in, in developing ACOs. Yeah, I think so. I think John probably didn't see prior tweets, or I doubt he saw your blog. He was just responding because it makes sense, you know, that silly health plans. Uh, aren't the bad guys necessarily, you know, they're an important part of it. Let's talk about what that important part could look like. I actually extended the conversation. If you're open, we can go further or we can end it now. What's your pro what's your pleasure? Well, we're pretty close. I think we've covered an awful lot of ground here. Okay. And, you know, I, I think, uh, so what would I, maybe I'll, I'll, you know, put on the shoes of, uh, uh, you know, wear the hat of a, of a health plan executive and, and, you know, maybe ask the question. So uh, if I'm a health plan, what do I try to do to uh, build uh, economic relationships with, uh, with doctors? And, again, uh, using a metaphor here, uh, I think you've got to recognize that the relationship of payers and doctors has been uh, in a hole. Uh, and the first step in... Uh, getting yourself uh, out of the hole is simply recognizing where you are uh, and how bad the payer-physician relationship has been in communities. Uh, the second thing you got to do is you got to stop digging, and uh, <laughs> that most most payers uh, have have been viewed as very schizophrenic by the doctors, where 
the medical director from the health plan comes out and says, we want to help you with our disease management program and we want you to participate. And, you know, the CFO uh, says, yeah, and we're going to reject 30% of your claims, uh, you know, and take uh, you know, a long time to pay the rest of them. Uh, you know, what you're going to need is really a, a comprehensive rethinking of the role and avoiding, again, the schizophrenic behavior that, that health plans have shown to, uh, to doctors. Uh, and, again, drawn from a personal anecdote, uh, you know, I think back to uh, a time a number of years ago when my wife and I were having a fight, and uh, we were really uh, uh, pretty heated, I will, I will, I will say. And, uh, you know, I reached a sudden moment where I just uh, looked at my wife and said, uh, you know, you're, you're right. You know, I apologize. I'm lower than whale spit. <laughs> and it immediately relieved the tension in the room. And my wife laughed and I laughed and we hugged each other and, uh, you know, the, that we got over it. You know, I think that's a picture of the kind of, uh, mea culpa that health plans have to do. So, you know, you stop digging uh, you, or you recognize you're in the hole, you stop digging, and then you develop a plan to begin to get out of that hole. And uh, that's where uh, health plans could be very, very instrumental, particularly with some of the more physician-led ACOs uh, in providing uh, capital, in providing uh, technology, in lining up their uh, reimbursement methods to uh, support the adoption of uh, electronic health records and, and to make them a mirror of what you see in the meaningful use requirements. Uh, you know, health plans uh, could be, uh, uh, some of the health plans, Aetna, for example, has done a number of experiments, and I think uh, in terms of caring for some of the sickest patients, uh, the evidence we've seen is where you hire uh, a nurse and it's a nurse on Aetna's payroll, but it's a nurse that's put into the doctor's office to coordinate the care of some of the sickest patients. Great idea, and it really has been shown to work. Uh, the nurse has the relationship with uh, the local physicians and the trust of the patients and the doctors, yet it's being paid for by the health plan. Uh, you know, Many, many early examples of the kinds of things that health plans can be doing. Uh, and uh, I... I um, as another early warning signal, uh, when we were talking this morning, I mentioned to you, Greg, I've uh, been talking with a conference organizer. Uh, I don't want to share uh, details, but I you know, think, again, what we're talking about here is an early trend that's being recognized. Uh, and uh, there's a conference that will be in Chicago in September around the topic and the theme of uh, what payers can be doing to be better aligning with physicians. And so you'll hear a day and a half of folks you know, laying out the kinds of things that they've done. There's there's an awful lot here that can be done. Oh, uh, that's so true. And there's there's so much rich experience there to draw on if 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 they will. Um, you know, this reminds me back um, in the days of the emergence of the PHO industry, and you, shortly thereafter, at least in some quarters, you heard conversations around this utility company role of a management company. And it, it sort of touches on all the things that you suggest might be the kinds of things health plans become experts at and reach out and support. 
I think the 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 new law, the Accountable Care Act, is pretty ripe with how the payers can retool themselves, how they can add value to the conversation, and uh, stay in the game. Uh, I'm, look, I'm looking at the chat screen, uh, Greg, and we've got a comment, a uh, great example here. In Minnesota, the three largest payers have almost been in competition to set up ACO-like agreements with the providers. Uh, here they're called total cost of care agreements. Uh, fits the picture perfectly where, uh, you know, I think the initial uh, reaction of health plans around ACOs was uh, one of uh, skepticism and uh, concern of uh, disintermediation that the ACO would contract with the employer, and uh, they've raised a lot of, uh, you know, antitrust flags. Uh, you know, that's an example of where uh, Karen and Nagin uh, ought to be, you know, stopping what they're doing. You know, yelling antitrust about ACOs is not going to win you any friends with the doctors. And uh, in turn, uh, you know, go out and talk with the doctors, reach an arrangement with them. And this comment that's being uh, added here about what's happening in Minnesota, uh, again, I think is an early uh, warning of the kinds of deals we're likely to see where the payers are seemingly in Minnesota actually competing with the providers to set up or competing with some of the health systems to set up the ACL with the doctors. <laughs> the follow-up comment is the payers are now trying to one-up one another and how much data they share with the providers who can give them the best report slash data. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the value add right there. They They have the data. And so, again, uh, switching hats if you're a doctor, and uh, what what do you need in the future? You need uh, as close as you can get uh, to real-time clinical data, both about individual patients with the idea that that data will help you take better care of them and about your population as a whole, again, with the idea that you want to do things proactively, and the question you ought to be asking yourself is who or what kinds of organizations or what partners are going to be better suited to to provide me that data? Uh, Am I going to get that data from uh, the hospital, or am I going to get it from the payer, or perhaps I'm going to get it from both? But I think that that it's really an important question to to ask yourself, and that uh, ought to be a major factor in determining your choice of who you think you ought to partner with. Absolutely. So we've covered a whole lot of ground, Greg. Okay. Well, so I want to thank my uh, my guest commentator and always inspiring who does such exceptional work, Vince Caritas, for his time today. Thank you, Vince. We will do this again. I, I'm really excited about aligning the idea of a tweet chat with a with a broadcast and it's sort of a multi-channel and maybe even someday layer in some video outbound video which could get exciting but uh, um, you know we've proven that this twitter environment is a a catalyst it's it's an empowerer it's a uh, it's a de-siloer a de-siloer in terms of breaking down maybe historical blocks between people and it really flattens and levels the playing field enabling conversation that might otherwise not occur. So thanks again, Vince. Well, thank you to you too, Greg. You've been a real leader in, I think, establishing ACO Watch and 
uh, being very active with the uh, with Twitter hashtag around ACOs, and uh, I think in creating uh, resources and building social communities. So my my hats off to you, and uh, for folks in the audience, you know I I welcome pushback and. Uh, I think again the, the the spirit of this is sort of is in percolation stage, and uh, you know very much appreciate the chance to talk with you and even uh, articulate some ideas that have been sort of uh, ruminating and, and not yet fully baked. And where can they direct that pushback, uh, Vince? Uh, they can send me a tweet at uh, my Twitter handle is Vince Caritis, V I N C E K U R A I T I S. Or email is uh, Vince K V I N C E K at B H T Bravo Hotel Tango Info I N F O dot com. Or they can touch you at the E Care Management blog, and that's E dash CareManagement dot com. So thanks again, Vince. Always enjoy chatting with you. Have a great day. Enjoy paradise up there in uh, Boise, Idaho, and we will talk to you soon. All right. Hey, thanks. Many thanks, Greg, and thanks okay. for all for listening. All right. Bye now.